our lesson from the Word of God tonight is taken from the 30th chapter of Isaiah. I'd encourage you to turn there, and as we use that chapter and those to follow it, we'll be encouraged in so many ways to ponder, think about, and implement some amazing truths in our lives. That song we just sang together, Hold to God's Unchanging Hand, it really does remind us, I trust, about the fact that it is the unchanging hand of God. No matter what the particular fancies and fads of humanity may be, there is an anchor of the soul spoken of in Hebrews 6.19. There is something that never changes. That means to say it's right now. It was right yesterday, and yea, it shall be right until time shall be no more. And I would think that for all of us that would not only be comforting, but at the same time it would be so thrilling to appreciate we know what that is. And so tonight, let's revisit chapters 30 and following of the book of Isaiah. This is the sixth installment in our series of lessons on this wonderful Old Testament book. We have tried to approach it in such a way that the book will not, in fact, take us as long as if we were doing one chapter at a time. For you see, Isaiah has 66 chapters, and if we were to approach it that way, it would certainly be a rather lengthy series and a rather lengthy study, but to do so in the way we've done it, I trust, will be helpful and beneficial. And so tonight, we'll look at that series of chapters, chapters 30, on up to about chapter 38. But as we do that, as always, I've tried to select a few of the items from those chapters and I suspect that as we study them tonight, we shall be quickly appreciative of the fact they look like they could have been a part of yesterday's news. That's how relevant they are. That's how timely it is. And with perhaps no further stated about that, why don't we notice one thought, thought on that slide before we launch into our study of chapter 30. And that thought is the middle one on that slide. The book of Isaiah in a rather amazing way, details not only the blessings that those who are faithful are able to enjoy, but God even in this book details and highlights that there was a very special remnant. That is to say, a group of people who, although they were, in fact, as a whole people going into captivity, there was to be a select few who would love the Lord enough, who would be committed to Him enough that even in the midst of those tribulations to come, they would be particularly blessed, and aren't we thankful the Christ child came through them. They were the people that one day every one of us should be eternally thankful for them because they loved God enough to do what He said. With that in mind, let's turn to chapter 30. Now you'll notice in this chapter, there are a couple of ideas perhaps worthy of our note, and we will note them as we proceed, but it starts like this. Let me begin reading in verse 1. It says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth, to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Now let's develop a few ideas because we are told enough to place all of this in its proper appreciation. It begins at the top of that slide. God's people at this time, of course, they were still enjoying their national independence. That is to say, the nation of Israel was in existence. However, they were not living as they should live. They, in fact, had chosen some rather wrong pathways. 
And you'll notice that one of the choices that they had made is what I've highlighted near the top of that slide. You see, they already knew that some national pressures were coming upon them. Enemy nations were rising in strength and in fearfulness. And that included, you see, nations to the north. In the midst of all of that, did you notice what the children of Israel chose to do? Verse number 2 told us, they walked down to Egypt, but they haven't asked counsel of me. They turned their attention to the Egyptians. You see, their primary national enemies were coming from the north, Assyria as well as Babylon. Both of those nations were to the north. And so they turned to the south thinking that Egypt would send troops and Egypt would send assistance and help and Egypt would bail them out. Let's read further. I wonder if it happened that way. You may notice in verse number 7, For the Egyptians shall help in vain, and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this, their strength is to sit still. God rather plainly told them, Egypt is not going to help you. Egypt is not going to be a place to defend you from these enemy nations. They are not going to be successful in their effort, whatever they may attempt. And of course, the reason is evident. Because it was the will of God that this people be punished for what they had chosen to do and for what they then stood for. And therefore, even if you appeal to Egypt, this is all that's going to happen. Babylon is going to conquer Egypt. In other words, Egypt's not going to help you. You see, God is a strength so powerful that humanity is not going to win any war against God. It's never going to happen this way. Many times in this book, as well as in the book of Jeremiah, mention is made about the people placing their confidence in Egypt. Placing their confidence in such a way that the Pharaoh of Egypt and the nobles of Egypt and the armies of Egypt would come to their rescue to help them fight against Babylon or to fight against some other enemy. And as we found here, God simply said, it's not going to help you. That's not going to be successful. At that point, let's draw an observation that perhaps would be very helpful to you and me as well. Did you notice in the midst of this, in particular, verse number 3 put it like this, Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame, and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. You may trust in Egypt now, but it's going to be your shame eventually. You may well put your confidence in Egypt now, but it's only going to cause confusion in the years ahead. That's not all. Look at what else he said. Verse number 5. They were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them, nor be in help, nor profit, but a shame and also a reproach. Now at this point, you may pause to notice, the people again were turning their attention. They were scared of these Assyrians, and they were scared of the Babylonians. And in their fright, they turned to Egypt. But did you notice the very sad refrain that God mentioned? You never came to me. You didn't ask help of me. You didn't ask what my eternal counsel would be in this matter. Should we go to Egypt or not? Should we depend on the Egyptians or not? They never asked God. Look at one chapter further in Isaiah 31. Verse number 3 will in fact describe this state of affairs. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. 
Think about the comparison. These people that you are now trusting in, they're humans like you are. Do you really think that they're going to be a safe haven of confidence and trust? Because they're not me. They're not God. Let's read on. And their horses flesh and not spirit. The only thing the Egyptians had to offer again were these physical things such as horses and chariots. They do not have the eternal almighty spirit which I have. Maybe it's evident then to see. God reasoned with them, hoping that they might appreciate the foolishness of their choice. The application to you and me, of course, is obvious, and it's rather evident. And may I suggest that every human being of every nation of every age has to deal with this same issue. Where are you and I going to put our trust? Will we place it in ourselves? Will we place it in our government? Will we place it in those friends or neighbors that we cherish and love so much? Or will we put it right here? That question cannot be considered too strongly. Because in times in life when things are well, maybe it's never to cross our mind. But when challenges come, and when others have a different consideration than we, it's awful tempting, you see, to follow that which man may suggest. Sometimes that may be our government. Sometimes, however, it may not be. doesn't matter who it is. Although it's not an Egyptian, the same eternal failure will follow. It'll only produce shame and it'll only produce confusion. And God was hopeful that the Israelites would come to appreciate this. Isn't it fascinating as you approach the bottom of that slide how that all of us are encouraged with the following statements. In Proverbs 3, verses 3 through 5. Didn't the wise man Solomon say it like this? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all thy ways, and He shall direct thy paths. Now notice all that's predicated upon trusting in the Lord. That is to say, just doing what He says. Not asking Him why. We'll find out why in heaven. The point now is to do what He says and trust that it is in our best interest always. This lesson of chapter 30 only begs the next one. So let me turn the slide and ask you to consider this one, taken from verses 8 and following. So allow me to read this set of verses. Isaiah chapter 30, beginning in verse number 8. And may I again invite you to hear and to consider how timely this idea is, and how easily it is to appreciate the application even to you and me today. Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, See not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, Because ye despise this word, and trust in oppression and perverseness, and say thereon, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you as a breach, ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall whose breaking suddenly cometh. 
in an instant. Let's develop a few thoughts about that interesting passage. I have invited you to think through some of them with me based on the slide that's now before you, but let's begin like this. Did you notice verse number 8? God instructed the prophet Isaiah, you go and write this down. Isn't it true that the things you and I hear, well, we listen to them, and we may remember them for a while, but it's so easy, given the fallibility of human memory, we may soon forget exactly the way it was said, precisely the words that were used, and the time may come we'll remember fairly little about the overall situation. But if something is written down... It is a timeless record to which one can return and always be apprised of what was said, the way in which it was said, and the other particulars that surrounded it. God told Isaiah, you make sure to write this down. What did he write? Verse number 9, this is a rebellious children. It's a lying children. They will not hear the law of the Lord. Isn't that a stirring thought? to have the God of heaven make this indelible matter written down, and here you and I are reading about it, 2,750 years after it was written. This is an eternal record about the people of Israel. It's not a very good record, is it? Wouldn't you hate to have this written about you and people 3,000 years from now are reading what a terrible choice he or she made, being you or me? That'd be awful. And yet we have this record of the people of God that should have known better. Look at what else it says. Not only will they not hear, but verse number 10 is the one I chose as the lesson text, and it's the one that was read in our hearing just a minute ago. Notice what these people said. Not only did they have little interest in the Word of God, they actually, in aggressiveness, would say this. They would tell the seers, don't tell us anything. We don't want to hear it. What do you think about that? And they would say to the prophets, we only want you to say what we want to hear. You tell us smooth things. If it's anything that's uncomfortable to us, if it's anything that's not according to what we've already been doing, just don't bother. I don't want to hear it. How does that sound? In description of a people who are not interested in God's Word, Anytime it says anything different than what they want to hear. Here were people who were telling the seers. And remember, the seer was somewhat like a prophet. They had the capability of foretelling the future. Don't tell us anything if it's not what we want to hear. Then they said this. Prophets, don't you tell us what's right. You tell us what's smooth. Now what do you think about that? Not having an interest in what's right. Having only an interest in what sounds good to me. That which I would prefer. I don't want to have to change anything, you see. You only tell me what would allow me to do what I've already been doing and what I feel comfortable doing because I don't want to change. Don't you think that that sounds like much of the problems that have always plagued the human family? We want to do what we want to do and we don't much care about God telling us anything different. Well, these people were directly challenged by the God of heaven. Remember, He's the one that gave Isaiah these words. You'll notice about the middle of the slide. Speak unto us smooth things. You might want to take note of Isaiah 41, 7. 
where there's a reference given to that word smooth. And here's the basic idea behind it. Pieces of metal that they needed to work with in that day and time, they would use a hammer, they would use some other hard object and beat that metal to where it was smooth and would serve the purpose that they needed. Maybe it had jagged edges, or maybe it had imperfections, or maybe it had other matters that rendered it very unskillful in which it might be used for the purpose at hand. They beat it into something smooth. They said, that's the kind of teaching we want. We don't want anything challenging. We don't want to have to change. We don't want it to be uncomfortable to us. We don't want it to cause us any guilt. You preach smooth things. I believe we're beginning to see God was rather unhappy with that attitude, wasn't He? Because His way, of course, has always been right. Today, you and I can find ourselves in that situation as well. For that reason, I've asked you to notice over in chapter 34, verse 16 of this same book, we have a record of what they did not want to hear. We have a record of what they refused. Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want or mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. God said, the very thing you see that you haven't had an interest in hearing is that which shall never fail. It's that which shall always bring about that for which I intended it. We'll get to that when we see Isaiah 55, verse number 11. God said, my word will not return void. It'll always accomplish that for which I sin it. Now, it might well be you and I can fail, but it won't be because of the word. It'll be because of our failure and dedication and diligence to it. Prophesying to us smooth things. That surely must be one of the saddest phrases in all the Old Testament. Here were supposedly God's people and they didn't want to hear the Word of God. Reminds us somewhat again about the possibilities of what can come upon you and me. We can become so intrigued by the things this world has to offer, be it riches, materialism, possessions, fame and notoriety and honor, even our career. And the Word of God can come to be far down the list of significances. When that comes to be the place, we too can find ourselves in a very sad and sorrowful lot. So far, these lessons tonight, and there have only been two, let me divide, invite us to come to a third one. Having looked at these two, Let's turn the slide and give some thought to dwelling with fire. Now, the whole thought of dwelling with fire sounds greatly uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because fire, you see, is very hurtful. Now, you and I know it's possible to use fire in a way to, you know, burn brush or something you want to get rid of. But by and large, when you and I think of fire, we think about something that's devastating. It burns a house or it burns something else that's greatly important and valuable. There's a reference in Isaiah 33. Would you come with me to verse 13 and let us listen to what it's like to dwell with fire and in fact a great lesson that can be of benefit to you and me. Hear ye that are far off what I have done and ye that are near acknowledge my mind. You can already begin to hear God pleading with them, please don't be afar off. Hear my word and hear what I have to say and be apprised of what I have accomplished and what I've done for you. 
Now verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Now remember, we've already learned that they were so fearful, they were headed to Egypt. They didn't turn to God, but this fear of this enemy nation has taken me to the point where I've got to do something. And did you note what God called them? Sinners in Zion. He didn't call them faithful. Here were people living in actual Jerusalem, and He called them sinners. Let's read on. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. The hypocrites? Here again were the people that should have been dedicated and faithful to the Lord, and even through the midst of challenge, they should have had enough experience to know that God would be with them if they would be for Him. God never turned His back upon them until they had turned their back upon Him. They were always the first one. And when they would turn to idols, then God would admit that because you have cast me away, I shall cast you away. And in 2 Chronicles 36, He cast them into Babylon. He confessed to them that's what He did. And Babylon came only because He permitted them to. In chapter number 33 of Isaiah, let's read on. So these hypocrites who were not what they ought to have been, He now says, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Aren't those piercing questions? Can you imagine the thundering nature of God asking, Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Now the fire He's talking about is the fire of challenge and tribulation, the fire of oppression that comes. And when the enemy came, it was going to be bad. It was going to be very bad. And God said, who is going to dwell? Who will survive? Who will, in fact, emerge triumphantly and do so with victory? Who's it going to be? The next verse will tell us. He that walketh uprightly and speaketh uprightly. He that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He, the text says shall dwell on high. His place, the text says, of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. I hope we all are apprised of the fact God here says, when the difficulties come, I'm going to preserve some people. Who's it going to be? Those who live rightly and speak uprightly. Those in verse number 15 that have not been given to sinfulness. Those who have been given in thoroughness and correctness to my way. Those in verse number 16 are the ones that I shall feed. They're the ones that I shall provide water. They are the ones, you see, in verse number 17, that shall behold the beauty that comes with that set of blessings. The question's a mighty one, don't you think? Who will dwell with fire? You and I, might we appreciate this lesson. If you'd like to hold your finger here, look with me to Psalm 15. One of the Psalms sounds so familiar in this way that I thought we ought to read it. After we've just read that text in Isaiah 33, listen to this one in Psalm 15. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? 
Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth at his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own herd and changeth not. He that putteth away, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh a reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. There are some things that are right. And as the New Testament has unfolded what those are to you and me, we're reminded that God's going to take care of us if we will follow Him. His priority must be number one. Anything else will not suffice. He is a jealous God. He told ancient Israel that truth. And Jesus the Christ came to this earth to make sure we understood it still. He went to a cross to let us know how bad hell is. And He went to a cross so that we could appreciate just how fantastic heaven shall be. And then He left us the choice. When He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, He won't make us come. He won't force us to. But He pleads. He begs. He implores. He invites. And He says, If you shall follow me in faithfulness, I will make sure that everything you need is taken care of. That includes food and water and shelter. Matthew 6, 24-33. Same promise made in Isaiah. Same thing. Jesus said, I'll ensure you have what you need. Don't you see, as Christians, we have the best of all worlds. He's assured that He will care for us here. And then after this, we have heaven to look forward to. If, however, we don't put Him first here, whatever blessings we have here may well be more from the devil than they are from God. And in so doing, we shall leave this life empty-handed, nothing stored up beyond. Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 19-21. So, you and I can easily ascertain, where's my treasure? If it's here upon earth, then God's not going to be first. If that treasure is laid up appropriately, though, we will thrill at the thought of making sure that all is well with our soul in this place and time. Dwelling with fire, something to think about, isn't it? As we come to the close of our lesson tonight, though, let's look at the last slide that has on it a, a lesson about knees and hands. Hands and knees. You may wonder where that's found in Isaiah. If you would turn with me over to chapter number 35, verse number 3 will be the lesson that we'll use to close our last major point of our study tonight. The verse reads like this. Strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. It's something to think about, the context in which we find a reference to knees and hands. Before we're done with this, though, I believe you may ponder a familiarity to that passage because it's quoted in the New Testament. In other words, there's a New Testament application that's directly pertinent to the church, meaning it's directly valuable to you and me today. Let's begin it like this. 
there were some still in Israel who at least had an understanding about the demand of God and what was involved, connected to the proper service of Him. When we talk about the unfaithfulness of Israel, we shouldn't literally think every single Israelite was an idolater sinner. What we do know is the leaders were, and what we do know are many of the people were because we're told so many of them went to Egypt. But it doesn't mean every single Israelite was a sinner. What we do find in light of this, though, is think about that small number that must have remained. And that was going to be true of that remnant a little bit later. After all, if you have a large number, say 100,000 people, and it turns out that there's just a select few, like 500, just to pick a random number, well, it'd be easy for the 500 to be discouraged. There were so many in our number, and we were strong enough to be fighting, and we were strong enough to be defended. We're just such a few that's left. That kind of discouragement happened more than once in the Bible. And it would seem as if God here had a particular message for them. It again reads like this, Strengthen you the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Weak hands and feeble knees. I mention it that way for the following reason. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. There's where it's quoted. In the 12th chapter of the Hebrew letter, we find this interesting statement made, and maybe it would do, do well for me to share a little bit of the background. I believe we could do this with great brevity. The book of Hebrews was written to a people. As the name would suggest, they were Hebrew in their origin or Hebrew in their background. That means they were connected to the Old Testament. So perhaps they had been reared up in a household that lifted so high the banner of Judaism that's all they knew. So they knew about the tabernacle, and they knew about the law of Moses, and they knew about the prophets and what was involved in that which they said. But let's face it, Jesus came. These people came to obey the gospel. They became Christians. But notice what would immediately be a problem. They had grown up knowing that old way of life, and they weren't persecuted when they were just Jews. But after they became Christians, they were persecuted. They found their way hard. And in the Roman Empire, many of the doors of the Roman Empire would have been proverbially shut to them. Remember, the Caesar would often make the declaration, you can't enter the marketplaces to buy food unless you'll bow down to the bust of the Caesar. But a Christian can't do that. A Christian can't bow before some image of a person because that's idolatry. Can you imagine the kind of persecution that would bring? I've got to feed my family. I've got to provide for my children. They're going to go hungry. So I'll bow before this statue and I'll go in and buy my food. I really don't mean it in my heart. You see, that's a bald-faced lie. God says if you bow before it, you had to have meant it. You can't weasel your way out of it by some kind of supposed justification. That just won't work with God. And one by one, many of them in the Roman Empire would be marched out to their death because they wouldn't bow before that bust. The book of Revelation details them. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, their heads were cut off just because they wouldn't honor the Caesar the way that he demanded. 
may I say to you, it might be easy for one's knees to get a little feeble. May I say that in this instance, this church or this group of people that the book of Hebrews is written to, in the midst of this kind of discouragement, in the midst of this kind of challenging situation, God to them said, Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You be stronger than that. You have the God of heaven at your back if you'll serve Him faithfully. You may have very few to follow you. That's true. You may have those that will oppose you. That's exactly right. You shouldn't be shocked. Jesus didn't have everybody following Him either. While He was here on earth, the vast majority turned their back on Him. You and I shouldn't think everybody's going to follow us either, or even what we have to say from the Word of God. But this much we must be convinced of. Those feeble knees need to be made strong. And the hands that are hanging down in despair needed to be lifted up in confidence because God's the one doing the work, not us. We're merely those privileged to work at His side. We're fellow laborers with Him. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 8 tells us. It is for that reason, you'll note near the bottom of that slide, you and I might ask the question, did they lift up those hands that were feeble? Did they strengthen those knees that were not as strong as they should have been? This much we know. That remnant was faithful. The later Old Testament details that here was a group of people who came back from captivity just as God had said they would. Were they few in number? Unfortunately, yes. The vast majority chose to stay in Babylon. Even when given the chance to go back, they didn't go. Do you notice what happened? Babylon grew on them. When they went into Babylon, they cried and lamented over the fact we are not in Jerusalem anymore. They were sad. But they grew to love Babylon. They grew to love it there. And even when given the chance to go back, the book of Ezra tells us they didn't go. Relatively few. Doesn't that remind us today, if we aren't careful, our hands hanging down can lead to a series of decisions and a series of considerations that will lead to the matter becoming worse, and we may choose to stay in the foreign country of Babylon rather than staying true to the God of heaven. That's a choice we all are going to have to make because this world is always going to present its challenges. The devil will make sure of it. He will guarantee us that in this life, our choice to follow the Lord is not always going to be easy. As you and I close this lesson, we have learned in these verses tonight from chapters 30 through 35 some things that can be said even from the prophet Isaiah. This conclusion slide is one that looks like this. The thrill of the book of Isaiah continues to be so timely, and its messages are right on point. Would we not all agree that that's because God wrote it? If Isaiah had just written it of his own thoughts, well, surely the messages would not have continued for 2,750 years. But you see, they are just as needful and timely and valuable today as they were then. Tonight, haven't we been reminded, always trust in the Lord above any and everything else. Always be such that as you and I find ourselves in the midst of fire, ensure that those that will emerge victorious will be the ones who have followed the Lord with faithfulness. In the final analysis, we also saw 
how tragic it is to only want smooth things. In the New Testament, you might recall when that happened, it led to the great demise of many of the greatest opportunities of the book of Acts. And finally, the last lesson. If you and I are such that, we want to be encouraged above all else. May we desire that word of the Lord mentioned in Isaiah 34, verses 16 and 17. Tonight, if we could be of assistance or help in anybody, to, to anyone, please think with care about the circumstances of what is your priority in mind, and we each will have to answer. If we've only wanted smooth things, if we aren't prepared to, in fact, emerge victoriously through the fire, if we've only been interested, you see, in turning our attention to trust in someone other than God, it's destined to be very regretful. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance or help, we offer the Lord's invitation, and we do so urging anyone that may need to do so to come while together we stand and while we sing.